da, da. Be careful, it's Friday night. It's Friday night. Bring it up. Bring it up. Surround me with sound, the merriment, wine, the women, children's songs. The plunge of the sea, the arching sky that goes on and on and on. Bring it up, up all the way. <laughs> Dear Mr. Shepherd, my husband Charles and I used to listen to you for years, and then you got into this insane habit of laughing and cackling and carrying on like a maniac, and my husband will not tolerate that sort of thing. <laughs> Yes, mankind marching forward, marching to the great abyss. You know, I know at least 500 choruses of that, and each one is different, and the lyrics are greater each time. Hello, hello, test. Hello, hello. Am I still there? I'm still on. Hello. What does this channel do over here, huh? Hello, hello. Hi. <laughs> I just tuned in to Wayne King here on my phones. He's still around with his golden kazoo. Of course, we do that at times. Now, you've got to understand that WOR realizes its responsibility in this world, Bob. Uh, WR was one of the very few stations that does, and it realizes that Friday night we have to wipe the slate clean. And the only way you can, <laughs> I mean, you know, the preceding week of jazz and fooling around and yelling and chicanery and fist fighting and venal operating and, and uh, you know, you know what we are. Let's face it, we're human beings, and you know what, what we are, you know. When you start yelling about other guys' rottenness, just think for one minute what you are. <laughs> yeah, it's a terrible thing, Chris. Most people have been able to do without that for a while, and uh, I suggest that uh, that we have wiped the slate clean here by a burst of maniacal laughter and a few quick choruses of El Capitano. Uh, by the way, uh, are you, would you like, come on, come on, I'll, I'll, I'll catch you there. I, I, I love to catch engineers with their back turned eating a salami sandwich. <laughs> Yeah, we like to catch the audiences that way, too. That's a terrible thing. You know, have, have any of you heard, you know, speaking of catching the audience, right, the place where he's least able to defend himself, of course, there's another phrase. I, I wish I could use some of the real phrases that com uh, really communicate what is going on in our world. There is a, there is a wall between you and me. Uh, there is a wall between all of us, and I, I guess that wall is gentility. I don't know quite what, uh, <laughs> how else to put it. But nevertheless, how many of you have heard that communication, that commercial, a terrible commercial, that's on television? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's an awful commercial. It's one of the, one of the worst commercials I ever heard, and it is a cleverly designed technical commercial. I, I knew they would finally do this 
Rush. You know, back in the days when George Washington Hill was operating, and George Washington Hill, for those of you who don't know who he was, is a legendary character in the entire field of broadcasting, radio, advertising, the whole business. There was a movie made about him one time. What was that movie called? The Hucksters. You remember that? Uh, of course, they disclaimed, they said it wasn't about him and all that, but everybody in the business, it was obvious it was about him, you see. And, uh, <laughs> and there was one of the famous scenes, of course, uh, was, uh, was the scene where, where, uh, where, the, where the big man, played by Sidney Greenstreet, who was a magnificent performer of this kind of thing, uh, Greenstreet could radiate disdain for the entire human race. There was always something twinkling in Green Street's eye that made you realize that he knew, and what he knew made him amused. It did not make him sorry. It did not make him sad. It did not make him weep. It did not make him angry. He was amused. And there it was. And by the way, the, the, the look of amusement in an eye, I think, is the most infuriating look of all. It's the look that will, will put scare into the, into the mind of, of, the, of the most onrushing clod, just a little amusement. It'll cause the clod to rush, too, incidentally. <laughs> well, well, here is old Sidney Greenstreet sitting there, and uh, he's playing an actual character, and this is a, an, apocryphal, apocryphal, an apocryphal story about the man who the book was about. But uh, here it shows all the top executives gathered in the big... Uh, in the big conference room, and the great man comes in. Now, this great man had created a, a fantastic empire, tremendous empire. And in the case of, of Mr. Hill, it was one of the great American industries, a tremendous uh, thing, and he built it up, and he built it almost exclusively on advertising. And he felt that he was, and in a way, I guess he was. He was a total genius in the, in the, in the, uh, in the department of getting a hold of people's minds and chewing it the way a dog gets a bone, you know. You just couldn't let go until finally you'd say, all right, already, I'll buy them. And that was the end of it. People bought them through that. See, up to that point, everyone thought that you had to advertise, and the way you sold was to cajole people, tell them of the beauties of your product, be nice to them, and make them like you. No, he went the opposite way. He had guys, he had 45 guys lined up on a stage, each with a deeper, higher, louder voice than the last one, each one saying, they're round, they're smooth, they're fully packed. Yes, they're smooth and easy on the draw. Yes, that, and they would go, oh, 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 bang, 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 for an hour. They'd bang that commercial out at you, day and night, all over the network. Well, of course, in the end, uh, in the end, people would say, all right, already, bye-bye. And, of course, it never stopped them. They would buy, and it still didn't stop them. They kept after them. Well, that was, that, that was the insistent yammering school of advertising. And, and uh, it had to finally come. Of course, poor old George Washington Hill didn't live to see this great day of, uh, of television and technical advances where the sound experimenters, the sight experimenters, the guys working in ocular physics and oral physics have come up with techniques that poor old George Washington Hill would have gone ape over. Literally, he would have gone out of his skull. There was a commercial the other night that hit me. I, I'll tell you, it was an insane moment. I, I, uh, the TV set is a tame thing. You know, you can turn it off. You can deal with it. The radio set you can turn off and you can deal with. Pretty much, you see, pretty much. Uh, pretty much, except not all the way. It is the one appliance in your house that is out to get you. 
And uh, it really is. Now, your electric fan doesn't do that. Your refrigerator doesn't do that. It is not out the... Now, well, how would you like a refrigerator that every time you walked past it stuck a foot out and tripped you? And uh, you'd get up to, 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 to deal with it. You turn around, and as it does, it swings its door open and hands you a salami sandwich. Well, <laughs> by the end of the month, you weigh 400 pounds. <laughs> and and you'd, you'd wind up, you'd kind of give up, you know. And incidentally, I suspect that might be a good refrigerator. Uh, can you see a re- wait wait till the day when the uh, believe me there there will be a day when the General Foods Corporation will get together with the Frigidaire Corporation to work on a model that will advance both their causes simultaneously and and here is the commercial I wonder how many of you heard this one or saw it oh boy what an insane one it's really it's it uses all technical devices more um, technical devices I've never heard yet myself and I'm in the field of electronics. I, the TV set is on, you see, and, it, and there was a very tame, nothing thing going on. I'm, I'm paying no attention to it. I'm in my own world. And the TV set over there, I think, uh, is, a, is a Francis Langford movie. Well, now, you know that it's very easy to ignore dynamically a Francis Langford movie of the early 1930s featuring David Niven as the young college prof. And, uh, of course, Francis Langford is going to one of those Never Never Land girls' colleges that everybody apparently went to in those movies, you know, where they do the calisthenics all the time, and uh, they all play harps and things like that. Well, uh, yeah, it's a strange schools they had. I, I, I suspect that nobody who wrote any of those movies in Hollywood ever went to a school, and that's the way schools seemed to them, where, where all girls stood around with white blouses and little short black things, and they wore sequins in their hair, and they sang things like, Go, you win, Saki! And they all twirled batons, and 400 of them in, in, in formation, you know. Well, there is that, that atrocious movie going on. And Francis Langford kept looking out of the window and singing something about a blue moon uh, in the middle of study hall. And, uh, and I, I, of course, the, my brain is going to sleep. When, when, you know, on came that little thing where they show the, the lights are all out. Have you ever had the sensation when you see that TV thing where the lights are all out and that one that's lit is yours? Either that, <laughs> That's a terrible thing. And, and it comes on, and I'm paying no attention. And all of a sudden, the set goes like this. <laughs> TV set. Well, I, I spun, you know, and I, I thought, uh-oh, uh-oh, it's busted into oscillation. Here we go again, you know, and I, I figured I'd, I'd look over there and the picture would be all busted up and the, and the thing's got double uh, negative feedback going on there and it's all a shot, you know. And as it's going like that, how they ever did it, I do not know. The, the, the volume, the sound on this thing was at least 10 dB above traffic noise, above the noise of the local riot. It was above the noise of, uh, of the artillery practice that was going on on the island. It was above the noise of the jet that was just going over. It was above the noise of the fist fight that was above me. It was above the noise of the sound of the elevator going up and down with the chains rattling. Arrgh! And it was pitched at a particular pitch. Now, I can't quite reproduce it with my voice. But if, if you want to try something, just leave your radio sit there for a minute and watch the people in the neighborhood yell. Turn it up once. Well, I'll tell you, uh, this thing went on, and I turned, and as I turned, they kept it on just long enough for you, obviously, for everybody in the house. What's the matter with a TV? They all rushed, 
And just as they do, on comes his voice saying, yes, if pain, insistent pain, is nagging away at you, uh, the whoopee pills taken in the time that it has taken me to tell you this will already go to work. And by the way, all the time he is saying this. Now, this is this is the subtlety of this commercial. The sound continued unabated. How did they do that, Walt? They did not fade the sound down. It was a new technique of intermingling voice with sound so that you could hear the voice clearly. And boy, could you hear that sound. Your, your, your brain... Ah! Went... It continued for a full 60 seconds, at least four months, it went. Holy smokes. <laughs> and I'll tell you, I, 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 I took one look at that and I thought, oh boy, what are we in for? That is the beginning of the, of the genuine, uh, the genuinely technical commercial that has nothing whatsoever to do with, nothing whatsoever to do with what is said, what is, uh, what is being sold. It gets your attention. The, the theory, of course, behind that is that if your attention is gained, that no matter what is said will make its point. Uh, oh, boy, speaking of insistent noise, this is WORAM at FM New York, talking, yammering all night long, all day long, all year long about what? Who knows, you know? But who knows? Who knows what's anybody talking about anymore? So what difference does it make? Don't get mad at us for crying out loud. Have you ever listened to yourself talk? Oh, boy, I have. And it goes on and on and on, the sound. Well, let me, let me say this. There, there, there will be eventually. I know it. I know it. I know enough about the technical world. I know eventually there will be commercials. And they are not the subliminal. Absolutely the opposite. You know, the, everybody was afraid of subliminal commercials. Those are great. I don't mind subliminal. You don't even know it. You know, that's all right. It's the one that spins your head around on, on, its, on its head socket four times and refuses to let you go. And then, here, here, here. To carry the subtlety of this commercial even further, you'd say, well, why didn't you just go and turn it down? I'll tell you why you didn't. No matter how low you turned the gain of this TV set down, it came through and was just as irritating. No matter what volume it was on, it was going, Arr! so turn me down. I go, Arr! go ahead, turn me down. Arr! Doesn't make any difference. All you can do is turn it off entirely and go. Well, now, turning a TV set off for a clown in the middle of a very exciting Francis Langford movie is very difficult to do. I mean, you know, it's, it's seriously, it's like <laughs> it's like turning off the ball game, you know? And, and it goes on and on and on. Well, I suspect eventually there will be experiments made. One more thing, too, uh, about that commercial. That commercial not only had sound that was hypnotic, not, well, it was, it was irritating and hypnotic simultaneously, but the picture itself continued to go back and forth. They had a needle, a needle that swung back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Across the screen, it was supposed to be some kind of a chart, a needle, a meter, back and forth, back and forth as it swung. You never saw the man talking. Now, that's the clever part of it. It was a total machine commercial. Nowhere did you see the man, and the man was completely immersed in the machines that he was talking about. On the one hand, the sound that got you was not the sound of a human voice. It was, the, it was the inhuman sound of an electronic machine, which was insistent, inhuman, and pitched at such a pitch that it was completely, totally all-enveloping. It's like trying to, uh, uh, literally trying to ignore an atom bomb going off in the next. You can't do it. And even if you said, I'm going to turn it off, it was too late because it had already gotten you. 
so you can pull down your shades when the A-bomb goes off. It's too late. Too late. I mean, it's all, the, sc the score has been made. You have been pierced. Your armor has been shattered. And it went, ah, all right, machine. Okay, what do you see on the screen? You don't see a mealy-mouthed announcer sitting there, you know, holding the product up. Not a bit of it. You see the dial of a very close-up dial, a, a beautiful photograph, by the way, beautifully well-lit, so that you wanted to watch it. It was not just plain black and white. It was beautifully lit, and there was a pointer moving back and forth horizontally across the screen, charting a graph. And as it moved, you could see that line of the graph going up and down, and you didn't know what it was. They didn't say it was anything. They didn't say it was a pain meter. You know, one of those jazzy meters they have on television, like uh, like stomach trouble meter. You know, that kind of those very scientific instruments that that guys are always, you know, like uh, here's a headache meter. You know, they, the meter goes back and forth. Those pseudo scientific. This they didn't pretend anything like that. It was just a needle. You know, oh wow, you turn and and not only did your brain get caught. The next thing you know, your your idiotic eye is caught. Now, how many times have you sat in a in a room? Uh, you know, you're, you're just you're just sitting there, and suddenly you are caught by the swinging of a lamp cord, swinging back and forth. It swings. You look at it. You know, yeah, it's 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 not really hypnotic. I, I guess it is on the verge of it, but it just swings back. And you look at it. Well, now you might not look at it more than sixty seconds, but that that's exactly the length of a one minute commercial. Uh, that's, uh, you, you, you bust your way. You, oh, no, 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 stop. Stop looking at it. No, 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 no. And by that time, too late, you've been sold. If you haven't been sold, they have at least imprinted, they have tattooed on your brain this message. And, you know, speaking of tattooing, I want to, I want to describe this. This, this reminds me of a scene that, uh, that there are, there are things afoot. I'll tell you there are things afoot that, uh, that, that I, I suspect that few of us, uh, a year ago, would have ever believed we would see, really. I am on a bus. Now, get the scene. I'm on a bus. Uh, this is a bus uh, that, that takes off uh, over here in the, in the Port Authority. Now, you know, there are certain buses that go to tough places. Uh, and you expect tough scenes on them. Now, if you get on a bus that's, that's, that says on the, on the, on the, you know, the little light that lights up in the front of it says, Blast Furnace Number 2 Special, spit tobacco juice outside the door before you get on. You know, no tobacco, spit in the aisles, that kind of stuff. I've been on buses like that. I don't know whether any of you have ever ridden a bus going to the, to the midnight, to the, to the 8 a.m. shift at, at Inland Steel, and, and you happen to, every bus was different if you went to the steel mill at, at night. Every bus was different. There would be a whole bunch of guys in one bus that would come from one neighborhood that would be bound for white-collar jobs or blue-collar jobs, you know, the kind where a guy works in the weighing scales or he works in the tin mill assorting. And these buses were very different from, say, if you got on the bus that was heading for the, uh, the number seven open hearth floor. Whew, boy, I'll tell you. Because a man was, these guys were frontline troops. And like frontline troops everywhere, you know, has it ever occurred to you that there are that there are rear echelon troops in the war of life? There are rear line generals in the war of life, and there are frontline combat skirmish troops. Now, I I submit to you that a guy who's coupling a, a, a line of freight trains in Montana at two o'clock in the morning in a snowstorm is one of the frontline troops. 
he is he is making it all work. You know, he's out there fighting it. He gets his leg cut off or his head cut off, and that's it. You know, he disappears into the maw. Like all frontline troops, they don't get the medals. Uh, they not only don't get the medals, they rarely even get field jackets. Because uh, it's the guys back in the village here who are buying all the Levi's. The guy out in the, in the uh, believe me, there's a shortage of Levi's at the roundhouse where they need them. They can't get them. They're all going down here to the little jazzy joints on McDougal Street, you know, where the, where the rear line troops are, are there. And now, it has been my experience, too, that, that, rear, that rear echelon troops always are far more romantic and far more nostalgic about battle than front-line troops, for obvious reasons. And so it is not an uncommon thing to go into the village, uh, to go into a place, a bitter end, you name dozens of places, where, where there's a young kid folk singer there from Swarthmore College, and he is singing about making steel in the open hearth with great nostalgia, and he's wearing a pair of, of uh, overalls right out of the open hearth and a pair of steel toed shoes, and he's saying, oh, Paul Majorac stood on the floor, he stood on the floor and said, by God, we're making steel, he stood on the floor, and he sings away there, you know, and, and you never hear them doing that in, in uh, Joe's Bluebird Tavern in East Chicago, Indiana, where 18 million guys every five minutes come pouring in from the blast furnace and just sit there and gulp down raw brandy. Raw bourbon right out of the keg. In fact, it comes right out of the pot. They make it in the back room, and they just bring it right out, and they drink it right down. But not one of them ever gets nostalgic about the steel mill. Any more than a front-line troop ever comes back from storming a pillbox and sits there and sings the ballad of Roger Young, my boys, oh, the ballad. Never, never. Remember the Ballad of Roger? Never, never, never. I'm sorry. You will never find a guy from the 9th Infantry Division singing that. You will find a lot of guys in the USO singing it, however, at, at Red Bank, New Jersey. Now, that's a very different scene. Now, now I, I submit that in the battle of life, and the, the great skirmish we're all involved in, keeping whatever it is away from us, hunger, want, cold, wind, all of it, uh, there are frontline troops and there are rearline troops. There are, there are generals. There are rear echelon generals. Uh, here and uh, the really rear echelon general. Here, here you've got. Let's say you've got the guy who's down at the open hearth, and he's the. Let's say he's the plant foreman, or let's say the superintendent. He is a combat general. He is. Uh, oh yes, it's it's an interesting thing to see a combat general in the steel mill. Here's a guy who wears a a uh, $200 suit to work. Oh, yes. Oh, these are, these are big men. He wears a $200 suit to work. He has a beautiful office. But under his desk, he has a steel helmet. And every hour or so, he puts on his tin hat and goes out and, and uh, stands on the bridge. You see, and he looks down there. And way down below him, he can see the heats being tapped and the guys yelling. And he can see the, the big pigs being moved out. And he can see the ingots moving on the flatbeds. And then he goes back in. This is a, this is, this is a, a frontline general. He is. He's, he's, he's been there, and, and uh, if you look carefully enough, you'll see a little blast furnace dust ingrained in his cheeks. He's, he's, he's there, you see. Now, in the main office in Chicago or in New York, there is another man. Now, he's the man usually that Sidney Greenstreet played. White hair. In fact, there's a lot of guys. Have you noticed in, in the old movies, when you see the, the, the movies of the 30s, there was an entire group of actors who played rich men with the white hair, and they always have a white mustache, and they've always got a young daughter who's uh, about to run away with Cary Grant. You remember those guys? 
You remember those guys? What were their names? Do any of them know that? I know, I know their... Who? Oh, no, Lewis Stone was always the, the uh, vaguely tired judge. Now, Lewis Stone was always the, the, the elder or the patriarch. Now, these were these... They, they were all character actors that never became famous, but they were ubiquitous. You knew them. You saw them in a million pictures. Big guys. They were always big, and they always wore smoking jackets. And uh, usually, either, if they didn't wear smoking jackets, they wore tuxedos. There was, <laughs> they always wore tuxedos, no matter what they did, and Hamburg hats. And their daughter was Jinx Falkenberg. Uh, yeah, these guys, I don't know. I, I, I just, oh, and, and uh, of course, this character is usually, and he is, he is the rear echelon general. He is Colonel Blimp of the, of the uh, industrial world. He is the guy who is in, in the chairman of the board in New York, and the steel mill, believe me, is in Youngstown, Ohio. He doesn't even know. He's never seen any steel, see. He, he, he's just a big man. Now, now, uh, in the in the world of the front line people, uh, the, the 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 genuine front line people, the, the the combat troops in life, you'll find very little sentimentality about their life. In fact, they are not even aware that their life is romantic. Uh, now, they, and also another thing too that is so odd about it, you don't hear much griping either. There is a strange acceptance of the front line status. There is an acceptance of the wind. Uh, I, I remember one time sitting in a bus. There's a funny little scene here. Uh, sitting in a bus, and a whole bunch of guys. We were going in, and I had been I had been put on an open hearth, uh, what they call a tapping gang. Now, an open hearth tapping gang uh, is is exactly what it sounds like. These are guys that that work on the floor, and they're part of a tapping crew. Now, the, now there is there's a, a really distinct hierarchy in open hearts. You know, when you see these guys working down on the floor, you see movies of them uh, in in the movies of the steel mill, and you 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 just see they all look like workers, but they're not workers any more than if you see fifty soldiers walking around. There are sergeants, there are corporals, there are BAR men, uh, there are signal men, and yet to the untrained eye, they all look the same. They're soldiers. They got the tin hat. Well, on, in, on the open hearth floor, there's a very strong uh, division of, of, uh, of responsibility and, and work and slavery and all the rest of it, and each man has a tag on him. Well, I'm sitting in the bus, and I've been assigned to this crew. My first night on the open hearth, I think I've ever told this story. Uh, I had gone through the open hearth a couple of times uh, as a messenger, just run through, and uh, it was it was it was very it was a very uh, I suppose you can say an abstract thing and it was exciting to me to go there because I was going out of it I'd go through and I would run out and I would be on my way to the coal strip uh, then I would leave the coal strip and I'd be on my way to the hot strip or the forty inch plate or the forty inch soaking pits or any one of the great mills inside the mill uh, a steel mill is not a steel mill I must say that too it's not just a place it's not just a steel mill it's a million little industries all put in a gigantic, unbelievable uh, melange, a cacophony, a, a, a hodgepodge, a, a galamophria, fantastic fruitcake. And, and, and there are guys who are looked up to by other guys that you would never believe. You see down there at the end of, of a long, dark, steamy, hot, rotten, stinky corridor, you see a little metal pillbox. 
that is covered with oil and grease and crud and dust, smoke of the ages. And, and in that little pillbox, there is a little tiny Isinglass window that can be, you can barely see through it. Just a little yellow light. And in there, you see a guy hunched over a grimy desk. And he's wearing a corduroy hat and a sheepskin coat. And he's got next to him an old crummy wind-up telephone. And he sits in there and he's checking little checks, little cards that are, that are handed in to him through the slot. He checks them off against a great big list. Then he puts them on a spindle. And every five minutes, a guy comes and takes his little cards away. And he sits there. Well, down at the end of that corridor... Way down at the other end from him, there are guys who think that guy has the greatest job in the world. This guy has made it. Oh, yeah. And, and then, oddly enough, as each guy at the end of that corridor, below him, down in the dank depths of the 40-inch soaking pit, there are guys wearing asbestos shoes who are lowered into the bowels of hell for five minutes where they breathe nothing but the fumes of sulfur and the, and the bowels of the earth exploding, they look up at these other guys walking around on the surface. Oh, God, if I could ever get a, if I ever get a, a top job. A top job is a job meaning you don't have to go in the pit. That's all. And the pit is the pit. Oh, boy. And so here I'm sitting in the bus, and, and uh, I have gotten what they call an extra day. Now, when you're a free-floating laborer, that's a protean laborer, and, uh, and a lot of guys in the various offices, whenever their mill was down or something, they would be given a, 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 a pass, like it's a kind of a, kind of a, kind of a pass. It's like, it's like getting a pass to take you into any theater on Broadway, something like that. Only you can only stand, you see. You, you, you have to stand back by the orange stand. Well, we would be given a pass that would meant that we could go to any mill we wanted to if we were out of work these three or four days when our mill was being repaired, and just go there and ask the labor foreman if he would give us a day. Well, this is my, my, first, uh, my first attempt at this. And I have been working in the tin mill now for a while, and it's pretty calm. And one day they decided they were going to put in a lot of electrical pots, and our mill was going to be closed down for two weeks. So, you know, gee, wow, boy, exciting. You know that exciting feeling you have when you're cast adrift from something that you've been sort of secure in? You're scared at first, but you're also excited. You're really excited. And so old Shep is riding down through the mill, and I go to these various labor bosses in there, and I, I go up to the guy, first at the coal strip. Now, I knew him, see, and I go in there, and I says, it's Joe Myers. And I says, Joe, uh, how about picking up a day? He says, oh, ten minutes ago, I could have put you on, kid. Ten minutes ago. Sorry, kid. He says, listen, why don't you go see old man Hubbard? I said, Hubbard, you meet the, the open hearth? Yeah, go see old man Hubbard on the open hearth floor. I'd have got a lot of snap jobs down there. So I go down to see old man Hubbard. And Hubbard is sitting in there wearing a derby. And uh, he's in this little wooden cage. And he's smoking a black cigar. He's got a vest on. There are certain kinds of guys that wear black vests with white shirts that are open with no collar. You know the kind of shirts that usually have collars? And he's sitting in there with his shiny pants. And he's eating a salami sandwich, and I go in to see old man Hubbard, and I say, Hey, Hubbard, Mr. Hubbard, how about picking up a day? And he looks at me. He says, Four to twelve? And I say, I don't care. He says, Okay, midnight. You come on midnight. He says, Listen, I'll tell you what you do. Go down and see Jimmy. Go down and see Jimmy. Give me your check. Go on. We'll pick up a couple of days. I'll put you on the floor. <laughs> I thought, Well, floor, you know. I thought, Well, you know, I'll stand around down there for eight hours. It's going to be fun. And so that night, I arrived about quarter, oh, something like quarter after 11. I was due in at midnight. I was kind of excited. 
Uh, this is the first time I was ever actually going, being plugged into the gap, you know, and in a sense, it's like, it's like guys that are looking at battles from a distance all the time. Once in a while, they send them up and he, he, he brings some equipment up and he rushes back. Well, you know, it's, it's a, it's a very interesting thing to have somebody hand you a helmet and they give you a helmet and they give you a rifle or a BAR and they say, all right, Charlie, here's your hole. Now, there are guys on the other side there and, uh, if they start coming through, holler, duck and wait. And just keep down low, you know. <laughs> it's different. You're not going to go back. So, so I, I look. I, I'm looking out there, and I'm, I'm I'm riding the bus through the night, and it's a summertime because that's the time the tin mill goes down. Believe it or not, that's the time you'd think the tin mill would boom in the summer. It doesn't. It goes down in the summer. So I'm we're going through the night, and the windows are open on the bus, and it's a it's a real mill town bus going through Indiana Harbor and East Chicago. And we're on our way to the mill. There's a whole bunch of guys sitting in there, and they're all sprawled out. And I noticed most of them have the open hearth badge on. Now, the open hearth badge was a green, a dark green badge, which had always seemed to me one of the scariest of all the badges in the mill. And it's a big green one that tags on. It's got the guy's picture, and it's an open hearth. Now, the tin mill had a light baby blue badge. Uh, you know, it's just a kind of nice one. And the white ones were the office workers. That was a nice one, you know. They had a bright red one, which meant you worked in the 2AC. I remember all those codes, but that dark green badge was a badge, you know. And it was always worn by guys who just sort of sprawled when they sat. And they were wide. And they had these black overalls that were just crud and grease ground right into them. Did I ever tell you about the night that the poor guy... Oh, boy, I shouldn't tell you these stories. But one night... All right, I'll, I'll drop this one and talking about overalls. Whenever I see guys wearing overalls and Levi's, I, it, it scares me. Because one night, I remember a guy who was on the cold strip floor wearing a pair of overalls. And, uh, and all the guys in the mill wore certain types of overalls. And uh, they were kind of, they were made by Big Yank and Levi. And they were dark blue denim, the regular overall type overalls. Some of them were, were, had, had the stripe in them, but I remember this guy was wearing the dark blue ones. Well, this night... Suddenly, without any warning, there was a lot of yelling and screaming out on the floor. I happened to have just come into the weighing scales office, and I heard a lot of yelling, and I, I turned on, just turned on the steam and went out and looked, looked down the floor, and I saw a fire, a strange kind of burning fire that was moving. Now, these mills are huge. I can't, I can't tell you, have you ever looked up to the ceiling of Penn Station, how everything sort of fades off into the darkness, great arching beams. Well, if you turn down the lights in Penn Station like maybe 200% and then line the floor of Penn Station with burning pits and uh, hissing, steaming uh, holes and, and various machines that moved in the dark, you'd have a fair approximation of one of the big mills. It's very difficult. The vision is not good. And way down at the end, maybe, maybe, oh, maybe uh, 200 yards from me, I saw this fire, and it was moving. It was a strange moving fire, and everybody was sort of converging on it. And I, I looked for a second, and then the fire stopped and went down and began to move along the, move along the ground. Well, I hate to tell you what had happened. Is this man had come to work that evening about an hour before in his clean overalls that his wife had mistakenly and innocently sent off to some place where they cleaned them in naphtha. I do not have to tell you the end of the story. You know the end of the story. And so there were millions of little little tragedies like that constantly going on. The strange things of that nature. Just boom, surrealistic. A man burning in his naphtha overalls, his new big yank overalls. 
Well, so here I am, you know, I'm looking, I'm looking at this, <laughs> I'm sitting in the, in the bus that night, and we're all sitting, of course, uh, I, I had had all the, the, the standard equipment of all the, the, of the, of the, what they call the floor or the, uh, the, uh, the labor force. Uh, all the labor force is given a certain set of equipment. Uh, among them, an inhalator. You're given a gas mask. You get this down at the stores. You have your steel helmet. Uh, it was a kind of a plastic helmet that's lined with little steel staves inside, a little white helmet. Uh, you're, you're also given safety shoes and, and uh, both white and, and dark blue goggles. And then they had a special open hearth black glass, which was used for looking in, in uh, open hearth or walking past uh, open hearth charging cars. Now, we're getting very technical here, but we all had this equipment. And so I was told to wear my heat equipment. Now, the heat equipment, of course, was a standard kind of uh, set of equipment, uh, including the dark glasses, the big black, almost like welder's glasses, and heat equipment means that underneath your overalls, you wear the thickest kind of wool, dark, oh, absolutely thick, uh, insulated wool sweatshirts. These are sweatshirts that are worn to keep heat out of you, keep it away from you. Instead of uh, keep it in, it keeps it away from you. As a matter of fact, your body temperature of 98 is, is, is greasy kid stuff. Uh, to certain areas on the open hearth floor. So I'm sitting there, it's night, and I'm going through the, through the summer night on my way to the first night in the open hearth, and I'm wearing my heat equipment. I feel like I'm going to the front lines, you know. I got my tin hat with me, and I got my lunch bucket, and all around me are these old veterans with their green tags sitting there. And, uh, you know, you, you don't know. Nobody knows anybody. This is this idea of camaraderie at work is, is kind of, uh, is kind of overblown, but there it was. And so I finally arrived at the clock house, the number two clock house, I get in the open hearth bus, which was a long open bus. You know, uh, oddly enough, in the mill, in, in Inland Steel, uh, they use or did use the buses that had been bought from the World's Fair. Uh, there was a certain kind of uh, a bus that, uh, that's a, that was a big open promenade kind of bus. It was like a sightseeing bus with big open windows built by Greyhound that they used in the big Chicago World's Fair. Well, the mill had bought all these things, painted them steel mill black, and had put on the top of each one open hearth or tin mill or a plate mill. And these buses would just move on past. You'd just jump on them. You didn't pay or anything. It was inside the mill, you know. This was a real working bus. And you'd jump on this bus and hang on to it. And, of course, the bus had seen nothing but World's Fair and Whoopiesville for years. And now there was nothing but a whole bunch of steel workers sitting there spitting and yelling and hollering. And they're on their way out to the big old number two open hearth bank, which stretched as far as the eye could see, reaching out into that black night that hung over Lake Michigan. It was built on a peninsula. And you could see that glow getting brighter and brighter and brighter until finally we pulled up at the, at the, what they call the labor dock. They don't even have doors, you know, in the state. It's the labor dock. And, 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 and so uh, I, I had been instructed to come off at the number three labor dock. And so at the number three labor dock, there's this great crowd of guys are all moving in. Great crowd, all wearing helmets, wearing their inhalators and stuff, all moving in. And there's a crowd moving out on the other side, getting on the bus that's going back to the clock house. That's the shift we're relieving. Well, they pull us into the dock, and there they are. They're lining up the labor groups. And they're, they're saying, all right, all you guys, hey, uh, I got up with my little tag, you know, I got my tag. He said, all right, all right, you fall in with that crowd over there. All right, all, right, all you guys that are moving down to number 17 through number 22, follow Fred. Now, 17 to number 22, open hearth. And I start moving down with my crowd, and I am in. Oh, boy. I can see those charging cars moving up and down and back and forth, up and down and back and forth. They're moving. 
and she's moving back and forth and charging that furnace, and we're moving on down towards the number 17 open hearth, which is at least uh, a mile away from where we were, and we're moving along that wall, and we could see our all the various crews peeling off one after the other, moving into their areas, until finally we get down to the number 17, and everybody's taking some salt pills, and we go to work. Well, what did we do that night? It's hard for me to tell you. Uh, it's difficult to say what a working man or a laboring man in the open hearth actually does in big industry. But I'll tell you what our job was, the, the little crew that I was in. Our, our job was to, was to load into great swinging uh, pails, sort of like a giant Sandy Andy, with shovels. We loaded into these pails uh, a combination of manganese, silicon, and carbon. We would have big piles of carbon, and they would tell me two shovels of carbon into each one that goes past you. And so these big clanking iron monsters would roar past me in the dark, and I go, wah, chunk, wah, chunk, big scoop shovel, and I got this black carbon in front of me. And then, wah, chunk, wah, chunk, gung, 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 gung. it moves past, wah, chunk, wah, chunk. And pretty soon I got no more carbon, you know. And all the carbon, carbon, and down comes a truck. They dump another pile of carbon in front of me. Well, you know, it's funny. After about a half an hour of this, I felt like a, I, I felt like Victor McLaughlin. You know, the, the movies of Victor McLaughlin when he was a sand hog or when he's down in the bowels of a great ocean liner and they're shoveling coal into this. And I'm shoveling away down there. Ah, oh, ah, oh. Well, we went like that for roughly, I'd say, two hours and 20 minutes. And I began to feel something funny down in the pit of my stomach. I began to feel something beginning to work, a kind of a gurgling down there. Something was beginning to work on me. And I'm shoveling. Ah, oh. I continue for about ten minutes when, without warning, oh, I cannot tell you what I was hit by. You know that that cold sweat you hear about? A cold sweat hit me, and I'm oh, oh, I'm heaving, and the big bow hunk next to me says, "Take a salt tablet, you not Take a salt tablet into the mouth." And I continue to shove all night long. I was one of the men. This is WOR Radio, your station for news. You see a lot of cars on the road this summer, but the one you can't help looking at twice is the Buick Riviera. The more you know about cars, the more you like this one. Recently, the readers of a leading automotive magazine voted the Riviera one of the finest luxury performance cars in the world. And no wonder. No other car looks or drives like the classic Riviera. If you've been thinking about buying a new Riviera... Right now, your quality Buick dealer has the best selection of new Rivieras he's had all year. The exact Riviera you have in mind could be waiting for you on his showroom floor. Price? The Riviera starts as low as $4,385. That's the manufacturer's suggested retail price for the Riviera, including federal excise tax and suggested dealer delivery and handling charges. Transportation charges, accessories, optional equipment, state and local taxes additional. There's no finer car than the Buick Riviera. And no better time to buy one than now. Wouldn't you really rather have a Buick this year? WOR AM and FM New York. Swim in the world's largest outdoor saltwater pool at Palisades Amusement Park. There are free circus acts, free dancing, free parking, and admission is still only 30 cents.
Holstein brief mich dann rief, kam ich drauf, dieses Leben geb ich auf. Hab gedacht, manche Nacht, bald steh ich vor deiner Tür und du sagst, Ganz leis zu mir. Wie schön, dass du wieder zu Hause bist. Das wünsche ich mir. Or, like you would say in English, this is my request. A weekly feature of our program presented through the courtesy of Schaller and Weber. For over 25 years, New York's headquarters for outstanding German-style meat and meat products. Yes, every week, more and more German and American housewives are experiencing the fine taste of Schaller and Weber products by shopping in one of the six spotless and conveniently located stores and learning why Schaller and Weber has won top international awards for quality and taste. So if you want to give your family the finest, always remember to shop at Schaller and Weber. Located in Manhattan at 1654 2nd Avenue between 85th and 86th Street. Or in Richwood, Brooklyn, 56-54 Myrtle Avenue. In Jackson Heights, Long Island, 82-1037 Avenue. In Astoria, Long Island, 28-28 Steinway Street. Or maybe in Flushing, Long Island, 42-06 Main Street. And in Hempstead, Long Island, 310 Front Street. Schaller and Weber, what a taste! <laughs>